Hi, this is Cody Dagalorians. This is Neil Dagalorians. And welcome to another episode of Bearded Fruit. Yay. Yay. No. Happy Pride. Yeah, yeah. First of all, we want to wish every one of our listeners a uh, happy LGBTQ Pride Month. Pride, Pride, Pride. Pride. Um, it's illegal to be straight. <laughs> I wish. Right. Um, it's June and it's Pride. And Neil and I hope that however you identify and whatever phase of life you're in, if you're like still in the closet or you're just out to your friends and family or you're like out in the streets at a Pride parade with your ass in chaps, whatever phase is you. My chaps are like mega chaps. So like... <laughs> Like, instead of, like, the ass cheeks out, it's only the ass cheeks are covered. <laughs> just the cheeks. I think just the cheeks. I think if that's your if that's, that's the phase you're in, we... Just, just the cheeks is the next Lady Gaga jazz album. I'm into it. We love you. Uh, we are really glad that you are a part of our big, large queer family. And we're glad you're part of the Bearded Fruit family. And if you're wondering about the history of June and Pride Month, Google it. Yeah. And, um... Have an awesome Pride. We would love to hear how you're celebrating Pride this month. So you can let us know on Twitter. Uh, you should follow us on Twitter, too. We're at Bearded Fruit Pod. And uh, you can tweet at us and let us know how you're making this month super queer. Have a fun Pride and a safe Pride. Yeah, happy, Make choices. Make uh, queer choices. Sure. Big queer choices. Okay. Happy Pride. All right, thanks. So this week, we're going to dive into a topic that's come up for us because of something that happened to Neil. Uh, Neil has, a, a, as he said, an, a humorous anecdote. Nope. Mm-mm. No? I said amusing. Amusing. Sorry. Sorry. It was illiterate. Like, okay. amusing two A's, amusing anecdote. An amusing anecdote. So here's what had happened. <clears throat> so, So there I was, driving home from Providence, Rhode Island. And the route between where we live outside of Hartford and Providence, there is no direct, real direct highway. Well, there is, um, but it's a very sad little highway. It's not like an interstate. Um, So I've driven on this road before. We have together before. And um, it's one of the few places in the Northeast where I've seen like Confederate flags on people's houses and stuff. Um, Real wild, real, real wild. Um, Eastern Connecticut, Western Rhode Island. And as I was driving back um, the other day, I noticed something. I saw a billboard and it was mostly covered, but what I could see said something about an AIDS walk. And it was covered by what appeared to be kind of like an abandoned or derelict like um, semi-tractor trailer, just the trailer part, not the cab. Um, And it felt super deliberate. And knowing where I was, the context of everything, knowing um, that I've seen Confederate flags and other sorts of things in that area, it just dawned upon me that that was super deliberate, that somebody had seen that poster, that that billboard, and decided, you know, these good people paid money to um, advertise their AIDS charity walk, so we're just going to block it with with a... We're just going to casually block it with this empty, non-functional looking... Um, tractor trailer and it wasn't even in a place where like you could say oh they're loading and unloading like it was literally just right in front of the billboard and it made me think a lot about um, this notion of geography and this notion of um, here here we are like two midwestern well I'm midwestern he's southern queer people and we're living in the northeast and there's this um, major assumption that being from where we're from now we're like all happy and dandy and everything's so great 
And where that's true in a lot of cases, I think there's a certain sense of complacency that comes with that where people don't realize that it there's still lots of terribleness in this part of the country. And like lot, lots of people like to say that, oh, it's, it's New England and New England is so progressive. But in reality, it's not. It just kind of has this guise of progressiveness um, that otherwise hides a lot of other forms of oppression. Um, I just think... Um, it's something that I'm always trying to tell people and talk to people about is that oppression up here just simply looks different. It's not non-existent. It just looks and feels a lot different. It's, it's quieter. It's less in your face. Um, so that's what I wanted to talk about today. I wanted to talk about that complicated relationship where yes, it is easier up here to be queer and open, but at the same time, there's still plenty to be upset about. <laughs> yeah, and I think there's also, and I th- I'm sure that you can identify with this as well. the The reverse is also true too. That um, the the Northeast, like New England, we are supposed to be in a progressive, safe place, and that is seen as like a universal. But the reverse is true too. The South. I grew up in Louisiana, so the South is deemed to be like a super racist, super bigoted place. But within the South, there are pockets of very progressive people and very progressive communities. And there's a lot of safety in an unsafe place in the South as well. Like depending on where you live in certain parts of the South, and I think it's also true in the Midwest, you can experience you can experience what people assume is just what the North New England is like. You can experience that in the South. You can definitely experience that in New Orleans, in my hometown of Lafayette. There's a degree of that there that's more than in like... Gay Don or some other place like that. Um, gay Donkey Kong? Gay Don. Gay, gay Don is a town. Gay Donkey Kong. Mm-hmm. He could be my daddy. I'm Maybe. just saying. I know but you're I, against me and cartoon characters, yeah. but... But I think that that's like the, the, the reverse is also true too. And it's a, it's a reality that, uh, that no one place is any one thing. And that um, both safety and harm exist in both places. Yeah, and I, I think it's really crucial that we have these conversations too because like like we talked about earlier, like there's a complacency. There's like a oh well, we're done, hooray, hurrah, everything is, is over and peachy keen. Um and we saw a lot of that with like the um passage of marriage equality, um the the federal passage of marriage equality. Um a lot of uh, uh queer activists um just kind of became silent until Trump was elected. And that's like a solid year, year and a half, two years. Um, So it's just like, it's kind of frustrating. Because on one hand, I feel like very defensive of Nebraska for those very reasons. Um, But on the other hand, I also like try to call people out because it's like, oh, well, Connecticut does have um, anti-discrimination um, bills and it did have statewide same-sex marriage before it was federal like Connecticut did have those things and Nebraska didn't um, in fact there was this recent bill that was vetoed by the governor in Nebraska that um, wanted to change the language of uh, marriage certificates to have spouse one and spouse two instead of bride and groom and the governor vetoed it and he's like mm. no no like I'm vetoing this because um, even though it's federally mandated, um, Nebraska still doesn't agree with it. Um, and he used all sorts of like bullshit reasonings behind that. Um, so if you are a same-sex couple, or any couple for that matter, um, in Nebraska, your marriage certificate will say bride and groom no matter what. Um, and that's hilarious and antiquated for many reasons. Um, but it just shows like, yeah, Nebraska's still kind of terrible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, 
But at the same time, Omaha and Lincoln are really nice places. Yeah. And there are really nice communities there. Well, I think... Um, so it, when we were talking about this earlier, it made me think of like, and especially talking about like the notion of complacency and what that complacency, uh, why that complacency exists. It made me think about um, something. Uh, so uh, Dr. Ibram Kendi, who wrote the book Stamp from the Beginning, a really great uh, National Book Award winning book about uh, the history of racist ideas in America. And your best friend. He's like, well, he's not my best friend. He's just a, he's a friend. Uh, no, he's not really a friend. No, he's, he's, <laughs> he's an acquaintance. Just, he's someone I know um, because he came to our life. Library. He knows but, you exist. Yeah, he knows I. Dr. Kendi knows I exist. Um, and he has a new book coming out called How to Be Anti-Racist. And I was very lucky in December to attend an anti-racism training with Dr. Kendi. And he talked about the, 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 the whole workshop was sort of centered around this idea that um, in, in our country, there are kind of three states of being around racism. There's things that are racist, ideas that are racist. Uh, which are kind of fundamentally believing that people of, of one race are less than or inferior to another. Then there are anti-racist ideas and policies and those things, which are, are the things that work actively against that idea. They're 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 ideas and things that work against racist ideas. And then there's another layer, which is relatively new, and it's the not racist. And what distinguishes a not racist from an anti-racist anti-racist is that a not racist is actively trying to seek to be neutral in this question. A not racist's only belief is that they are not racist. Mm -hmm. There isn't like any active work toward to toward undoing racist things. There aren't any ways to like to, any efforts to actively undo anti-racist policy. So you're existing in this not racist space. It's neutral. It excludes you from the conversation. It takes you out of it and it doesn't let the conversation touch you. And what he says is that most people are now comfortable being not racist. They don't want to be anti-racist. They don't want to be racist. So they're comfortable with not racist. And that fundamentally being not racist is racist because it doesn't do anything to actively work against the racist ideas and policies that exist in our country. It, it because it um, contributes to a status quo. Absolutely, and it's like that. That uh, I can't remember who the person. Um, it's terrible. Is it Nelson Mandela? The um, in 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 uh, in situations of oppression, um, if you choose to be neutral in situations of oppression, you side with the oppressor. Maybe it was Gandhi. Maybe it was MLK. Maybe tweet it was me, Abraham Lincoln. Tweet me at whatever that quote is, but it's a good one. And and it's like, and I think this is very true in these in like in in a lot of these kind of cultural perceptions around homophobia. I think that is also true as well. There are homophobic people. Then there are people who are actively fighting against homophobia. But most people are more content to just be not homophobic. Mm-hmm. And I would, I would also, I mean, I've been thinking about that word recently a lot, homophobic, and how I feel like it's used a lot, um, and I'm not saying you just did this, but I feel like it's used a lot um, in a way that's not necessarily appropriate in terms of like, when you think of something that's homophobic, it is um, anti-homo um, for reasons of fear, and I feel like it's important that that's part of the way that word is used, because um, then I think about like... What, what are some things where maybe people are actively not homophobic, um, but at the same time um, fulfill the status quo? And that's when we start to talk about heteronormativity. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's kind of important to distinguish those two. Um, like, I'm, I'm thinking about, like, conversations that I've heard at work about, um, about like, all women's colleges and how... Um, 
whether or not they should stay all women's or whether or not they should admit men, things like that. And talking about like, oh, the dynamic between male students and female students, blah, blah, blah. And it's ultimately furthering heteronormative ideas and concepts. Um, and I just remember I, I eventually barged into that conversation and I said something like, um, it must be absolutely exhausting to be heterosexual because like that's essentially what it's boiling down to is they're talking about dynamics between men and women when there's some kind of sexual or romantic something there. Um, and that's why all women's colleges should remain all women's colleges. Um, so I think like it's it's also important to think about how while there may not be necessarily a fear of sexuality, of homosexuality, there's definitely a huge push towards assimilation, towards heteronormativity. Um, and I feel like that's within this world too. And, and it's almost like that language also needs to be part of this conversation. And, and language is hard. And I feel like homophobia is often used in, in a way that references all oppression against um, queer people. And I don't think that's necessarily accurate. I think it's important to remember the phobia part and um, to think about other ways that queer people are, are oppressed without that fear being a part of the equation. Yeah, I wish that we had language that was more succinct, like racist and anti-racist. I wish we had that kind of I mean, like the, clear language, which because I feel like it's a very helpful um, language structure. Well, the term is heterosexist, but mm -hmm. like that's an awful term. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's awful for many reasons, but namely that it, it centers around hetero um, and, and heterosexual. Like, I think the idea, like, if we if we were able to, not that we're going to start a language revolution, but if we were able to kind of reframe homophobic things as being anti-queer, that that is much more encompassing and doesn't necessarily mean it is it is based in fear. It's just things that are against queerness, uh, structures and systems and ideas that are against queerness. My favorite thing is when it's um, typically a twinkish man, white man, who will say something like gaysist. Uh, and we're like, no, Soju had that taken care of. Mm, it's a you gay. Really, yeah, you cyst. went. Uh -huh. yeah, That's yeah. a good joke. I'm yeah, no, I'm proud of you for going all that way for a Soju joke. <sighs> and language. No, it was good. It was yeah, really no, I talked good. all about heteronormativity just so I could talk about Soju and her and her really, pilonautal really cyst. So, like, looping back to this notion of geography, which I think is like a, a very important one. This idea that certain spaces are inherently. Um, are inherently safer and inherently pro-queer because they are uh, they deem themselves progressive. The Northeast, for example, or a place like San Francisco or a city like New York, Chicago, these, these places that are going to be, we are naturally progressive simply because we are in those spaces. Um, what I think is kind of like really super important for people to recognize is that it's not your environment that makes you pro-queer or that makes you... Um, It, it isn't your environment that makes you uh, like an activist of some kind. It's what you do. It's you as an individual. It's how you move through the world and what you support and what you engage in that makes a place safe, that makes a community safer. Well, it's also, I mean, it's also the community itself. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's not about the, the site. It's about the people. Yeah. And I mean, people exist everywhere and queer people exist everywhere to a relative degree. Um, and while, I mean, there are communities where accessing that is definitely harder and that needs to be addressed, like rural communities in general, 
um, it doesn't mean that they're not there. I think there's actually a surge, if I remember correctly. Don't at me. Um, there's a surge in LGBTQ farmers. Mm-hmm. I think that's a thing that I've been reading about recently. I don't know. Again, don't at me. Don't at me, bro. But um, like those those people exist and they're there. And that's what makes being queer so beautiful is that we literally exist in every other way that you can structure and... and um, quantify people we exist in those populations and those different identities um and that's what makes us unique and beautiful so i guess like then the next the next sort of question then is what does this so we we recognize that this is a thing that exists this uh this misunderstanding of geography and and the reality that um that homophobic ideas and and anti-queer ideas exist everywhere even in progressive spaces so what's the impact of that what is what is that reason? What is that doing to our culture? I think it's furthering an assimilationist um, narrative, and it's furthering um, those practices um, because it allows people to not think critically about what they think about, um, or how they feel, or how they interact in the world. So as a result. Um, it, it furthers these questions of assimilationism, not just heterosexual, but also like racial and class um, and gender. It, it focuses, I mean, and even thinking about, thinking about how mainstream media talks about trans people, it always comes down to um, the, the people who are visible are those who fit within the nice, neat, binaristic view of trans people. You don't have, we don't have major celebrities who are not binary. Um, Outside of queer celebrities, like mm-hmm. there are queer celebrities who are non-binary. I heard Shea Coulee just came out as non-binary. Awesome. Yeah, um, and and like Jinx Monsoon um, is is non-binary too. So like we see these these queer celebrities being non-binary, but we don't see a Laverne Cox level non-binary person, a Janet Mock level non-binary person. Um, even on Pose, we don't see that. Mm-hmm. And granted, you know all sorts of reasons why. But um, just thinking about how how this affects our culture, I really want to stress that I, I do believe it's, it's, it's these assimilationist tendencies that tend to come further to the foreground and become easier to, um, to push when you're in a situation that fancies itself progressive. Um, you can then push the status quo in such a way under the guise of progressiveness. And I think that's very harmful. And I think too, to because you mentioned it very briefly, but what it also does is it allows people to lean back on their intersectional privileges, the the the, the places in their other identities where they are privileged to lean back on those and and abuse them and utilize them. It's very easy, you know, to if you if you are a white cis gay guy in a progressive part of the country to be like, yeah, everything's awesome because there's nothing around me that's bad and I can just I don't have to do terribly much because like what does it matter? I live in Connecticut or what does it matter? I live in New York. It becomes it becomes very easy for you to not only not engage in the challenges that queer people are facing in other places and less hospitable places, but it also then further allows you to not engage in everything around that. It doesn't. It allows you to kind of ignore race, to ignore class, to ignore gender, to ignore all of those other levels, as long as you're like fitting comfortably in. Mm-hmm. Um, and and. Like, I've always thought, like, not that I think we need to be white saviors. That's not totally what I'm saying here. But, I mean, I always feel like as a person who's, who's like, set of identities, 
leans toward heavily toward being privileged because even though I am queer and um, I'm I'm ace, so those two things are like not the norm. I am a kind of like ma- I'm a masculine presenting white man, so like that's I'm pretty good. Like I'm pretty solid. Um, it 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 is more important for me to think about and try to engage and do where I what I can because it is so easy for me to kind of pass through the world without it and I actually kind of have some sort of power I have some power so instead of just being comfortable in Connecticut I gotta I gotta use it to do something I have to use it to do something and and you know trying to make something better in my space and in other spaces that are not like mine word (laughs) Yeah. 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 And I think also, I mean, kind of piggybacking off of that, it it not only allows people to like rest on those, but they get to rest on those under the guise of progressiveness, of wokeness, of whatever. So it's like, well, I can't be racist. I'm gay. And it's like, no, Charles, that's not how that works. That's clearly not how that works. Um, And... Yeah, it's just, it's messy, nuance, complication. And like thinking about how um, the gay community at large is also oppressive against itself. Like it's wild that pride festivals require um, um, uh, require tickets and that you have to buy tickets in order to go to a pride festival. That's wild. But then, Neil, how would they pay for it? Freaking, there are lots of different ways to do things outside of like not to get too Marxist on you, but like there are lots of different ways that queer people can present themselves and celebrate themselves without money being a factor. And there are ways that you can pay for performers without corporate sponsorship. Like there, there are alternate economies that exist within our community that um, can fully function and fully fund these things. Um, I have lots of feelings about this. No, well, that's actually... <laughs> it's kind of tangential. I know. I was about to say, this is kind of tangential, but it brings up something that I've kind of been thinking about, too, is because um, I've been thinking a lot about that that Lord uh, quote. Um, the We'll never be royals? No! <laughs> <laughs> no. You mean Audra, Audra Lord? Lord. Not, yes. Okay. I mean her. Um, the quote, uh, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. Mm-hmm. And been thinking a lot about that uh, in terms of both like my my life, but also particularly my occupation, because I I work with the master's tools <laughs> all the time. Um, and I've been thinking about like, you know, I, I think it's it's yes, I agree. These like these alternate ways of doing things. And I think it's kind of something that I, I hope that we start to do more is sort of recognize that the kind of future that we want and the kind of the kind of world that we the, especially that really radical kind of progressive world that that is embracing everyone that really kind of dismantles all of the the isms and the structures that are oppressing us those things are not going to be dismantled by like a presidential election or they're not going to be dismantled by by facebook activism and they're not going to, they they we have to find other ways we have to find like we have to queer the ways to revolt and find other ways to get our ideas out in the world and find other ways to get our our the, like the messages out and to get the activism out that we have to use alternate tools in order to take apart the stuff that's holding us all back and i've been thinking about that a lot like how do how do you do that what are those avenues and what are those routes 
to to dismantle things that are harmful or to at least actively work against them if you're not going to use the 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 natural channels then then how do you do that is the thing that i've been thinking a lot about um particularly because we live in a very privileged place we live in a super privileged place i work at um i work at an institution that has a ton of money and a ton of resources and i have access to people like dr ibram kendi with an email and so like i i i have i don't yeah like i have the master's tools in a lot of ways because i have money and time and white power um whoa <laughs> whoa no not like that like kind of white power but like the power of whiteness there you go there we go um I have, we have access to all those things. So how do we then undercut, you know, I can't change the world by using that system. Mm-hmm. But then how do you use that system? How do you, yeah. How do you use those things and what, or what do you do? What do you put into those systems to help change those things? Because you might I think as about well. that a lot. It's, it's one of those things where it's like, if you've got access to the thing, use the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, cause you might as well, because somebody else doesn't have access to it. So you might as well use the thing. And I've been thinking about how that relates to my job as well, where I don't necessarily have a lot of decision-making power. How do I then um, interact with um, my community and my programming staff and all that fun stuff? Like, how do I interact with pushing an agenda that I feel like we should be pushing, but I'm not in a place to make that happen? Um, like, how, how do we how do we navigate these these um, sections? And also, like, on top of that, I mean, we both work at institutions that, for better or for worse, um, see themselves as those change agents, too. And we, as outsiders on the uh, from directorial staff, are able to be like, actually, nah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, there's a lot of issues here, um, and that's not cute. And we have a lot of work that we can do. But then we're told, no, we're already doing the work. What are you talking about? We don't need this. We were already doing the work. Shut up. Um, so, like, how do we, how do we navigate those moments as well? Um, so it's not just being white and easy. It's not easy being white. <laughs> no. <sighs> yeah. So no, and actually, it's weirdly, I, even though you thought it was a tangent, I think that actually kind of brought back to the original idea too about um, spaces that are perceived to be progressive but really aren't yeah it was yeah um i think like i feel like the kind of the the nugget of this whole conversation is just sort of recognizing that um no matter where you are it is a place where oppression exists because people are there um and any place that people are you're someone's oppressed (laughs) someone's oppressed no matter where people are Mm -hmm. that's just uh, kind of a a, a part of our nature as human beings what a beautiful note to end it on right right (laughs) no but i think it's true and i think it's important especially during pride month especially during this month where we're, we're celebrating everything that we are is to recognize that also in celebrating everything we are we have to be critical about about everything we are and all of our spaces and all of the all the spaces we occupy all the communities we live in all the streets we live in and and to think about how we can make those places better yeah and like that reminds me of a very brief um moment i had on facebook where i was being critical of mcdonald's using drag race queens in their commercials and just this this idea of um like rainbow capitalism um i was just like very briefly critical of it and on one hand, I see how that normalizes queerness in a really powerful way, in a really um, nice way. Um, on the other hand, it's also ultimately very gross, the practice of 
um, utilizing queerness when it's convenient, when it's in vogue, because it's June, um, and utilizing it as a means to sell a product um, rather than the idea of equality and rather than the idea of equitable treatment of people. Um, it's used to sell a, a product, a commodity, something like that. Um, so it's, it's, it's always a juggle. And I think like we have this culture where we're not necessarily used to these nuanced moments where it's like, yes, I can really appreciate the target is selling rainbow shorts, but at the same time feel like that's gross because target is also like using underpaid labor, <laughs> um, to sell their rainbow shorts. Um, and even if they're giving some proceeds to charity, they're ultimately a for-profit, um, company that overpays whatever. So, Whereas I can appreciate the cultural significance of somebody young seeing rainbows normalized in a department store like that, I can also appreciate that there's something deeply problematic about that existing. Um, and I think that's something that we need to especially consider when it comes to pride because the first pride parade was um, essentially uh, Christopher Street Liberation Day in 1970, the year after the Stonewall riots in 1969. And it was ultimately a means to remember the rebellion, the Stonewall Rebellion. And now it's this very commercialized, commodified thing. It's no longer a political, radical act. So we need to be able to mix both the idea of celebrating queerness as subversion while also thinking about the political roots and how, yes, you can be happy and queer, and that's great, but you can also be critical of why you're being happy and queer and great yeah i that's what we should be doing all month long look at me being the insightful that's one for once pride yeah um normally i'm just making jokes but normally you're just making jokes but are you proud of me daddy growth yeah oh my god you guys growth. Growth. he's proud of me um that's not the only thing that's growing uh, my love for you did you not listen to the Ace episode? I don't. I I, I was there, bitch. <laughs> and if you haven't listened to the Ace episode, go back and listen to our our previous, our past episodes. No. Epcot. Um, yeah. So as always, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. We are so happy that you're sticking around with us and continue to listen. Uh, if you like what you were listening to and you like what we're doing, go ahead and share it with folks. Let other people know about our podcast, particularly during Pride Month. Uh, so as always, we're so grateful and uh, we will see you next episode. On the flippy floppy. Happy Pride. It's hot in this room. Bye. <laughs>